Hello and welcome. My name is Sophia Besch and you're listening to the CER podcast. Hello, I'm here with John Springford today, who's an economist and the research director here at the Center for European Reform. And he has just written a new policy brief, which will have just been published when this podcast comes out. And in this new piece, John, you explore what would be the best possible trade deal that the EU and the UK could negotiate, could hope for after Brexit, based on original empirical research into the costs of trade between Britain and the EU. And indeed, the title of your piece does give away some of your findings. The paper is called Brexiting Swiss Style, the best possible UK-EU trade deal. Let's start with the motivation for your research. What was your starting point when you set out to write this paper? Um, well, so a lot of people have been complaining about people just remoaning and saying, oh, it's just going to be so difficult. So I thought, right, given the red lines that we have between that the EU27 and Theresa May have laid out, what is the softest hard Brexit that I can think of, um, which might work both politically and technically up to a point. So, you know, the, the motivation was, let's find out what, what that might be. And what do we know about the different sectors which the trade negotiation are going to have to cover? Um, and what do we know about the 27's interests when it comes to this kind of sectoral bargaining, which is at the heart of all trade agreements? And what are the UK's interests? And then let's try and think through what the best possible deal might be. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack in there, but you've mentioned that the most important thing is to keep the costs of the divorce down, to keep down the costs of trade. And this is really the one of the main themes in your paper, and I wanted to ask you, what does that mean when you talk about the costs of trade? What are they? What did your findings tell you? What has been the effect of the EU single market on the costs of trade between Britain and the EU? Um, everybody thinks when they think about trade and trade policy, they think about tariffs, which are basically taxes on imports, right? Because they're easy to understand, they're quantifiable, you can do some economic analysis on them and, you know, you can have some nice uh, results at the end of it. But the biggest costs of trade aren't tariffs. Obviously, if you tax something, you have less of it. So tariffs do have an impact on the amount of trade that will happen between two countries. If they have their big tariffs, there'll be less trade. But tariffs are the least of it. Non-tariff barriers are much more important, particularly in modern trade between developed countries like the UK and other European countries, where, well, tariffs are zero. But between developed countries in general, tariffs are quite low. Non-tariff barriers are the, are the big problem. So when you say non-tariff barrier? So a non-tariff barrier could be um, it could be something you can't do anything about, like the two countries speak different languages. And so that makes it more difficult for people to do commerce with each other because they can't talk to each other very easily. Or countries could be very far apart. That's a non-tariff barrier because um, there's obviously costs of transportation and all of these things. But there are lots of non-tariff barriers which you can do something about, which is the whole point of the single market, which are to get rid of regulations which kind of discriminate in favour of producers in your home market. That's that's a really big one. And also to try and stop governments from providing subsidies, say, to their favoured national champions. That's also another big one. So, so that's what we talk about when we talk about non-tariff barriers. So then what you did in your research is you looked into what was actually the effect of the EU single market integration 
on these non-tariff barriers between the UK and the EU? Yeah. And what did you find? Well, so so they're, they're, they're hard to quantify, right? Because they're, you know, they're really different. They're not tariffs. They're not, you know, clearly identifiable costs. But we used a technique which an economist at the University of Warwick, Dennis Novi, uh, came up with. And it's based on a very simple idea, which is um, imagine two countries and they have they have car industries. They are producing X amount of cars each and they consume Y amount of cars each. But if we see that they are producing the same number of cars between them, the two countries, but they are trading more cars and consuming the same number of cars, then we can assume that the barriers to trade between them are coming down, right? And that's just basically the insight behind it. So it, it provides a way, and you can do that for the goods sector, the services sector, and you can even get down into more smaller sectors using this technique. Um, and it provides a way to quantify over time what non-tariff barriers are doing. And the answers that we came up with weren't necessarily hugely surprising, but it's nice to have some, some really good empirical data. One, massive falls in trade barriers between the UK um, and the EU after it joined in 1973. The trade, trade barriers fell about two and a half times faster between the UK and the EU than they did between the UK and Japan and the US. Point one. Point two, basically we haven't seen any uh, fall in trade barriers really since about the year 2000 between the UK and EU. So the single market, all of these efforts which everybody's been making since the year 2000 in both goods and services have basically been a waste of time. <laughs> from un from our analysis like we haven't seen the cost of trade really really falling in the last uh, 15 years or so why is that well it's you know it's there are probably a few things going on one is that you just reach a point where it's not really possible to do a great deal more um, unless you were to turn the eu into a completely unitary state right where the EU is just in charge of everything, all economic regulation. But that is just politically not very likely. So I think that's the biggest one, is that we've reached the point where we can't really go very much further. A saturation without, of the yeah, single market. Yeah, without um, you know, an even bigger political backlash than we've seen already. <laughs> so I think that's, that's a, an important point. The other important point, I think, may be the euro. And I'm loath to get into this because it's quite complicated, but... Suffice to say that trade barriers between Germany and other members of the Eurozone have come down a bit actually since 2000s. And so actually being a member of the Eurozone probably probably does help a bit in, in terms of trade barriers. There are all sorts of other problems with the Eurozone, don't get me wrong. but That'll be another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so based on these findings of yours, the question I think that you were asking yourself is how to limit these costs in the future between uh, the UK and the EU after Brexit. And what you're looking at is how to design the best possible trade agreement for both sides. How does one do that? How do the UK and the EU approach this gigantic task? So, so you're absolutely right. I think what that trade barriers analysis tells you is don't worry too much about future integration and the costs foregone of not continuing to be a member of the single market it's about minimizing the costs that happen as a result of brexit because the single market has been successful you know we've got all sorts of data and evidence this paper and you know dozens of others that show it has been the problem is going back to the red lines that we talked about before um, Theresa May's red lines, as we all know, mean that we have to leave the single market, no European Court of Justice, 
no to freedom of movement. And the 27's red lines are no cherry picking. However, the 27 have agreed to cherry picking <laughs> when it comes to Switzerland. Switzerland is not a member of the single market for services or the single market for capital, largely because of arguments over banking, secrecy and so forth. But it has been allowed to be a participant basically in the single market for goods. And this, I think, is something which is going to be a likely outcome because the UK has such an advantage in uh, wholesale finance. It controls about three quarters of the single market for finances in wholesale finances in London. And while we would really wish that trade negotiations were all about, oh, the city of London, it's a you know, it's a, a European jewel which we should all try and nurture. That's not how things happen. So I think, I think a real focus on ensuring that barriers in goods do not go up is absolutely crucial. And we'll have to come up with some single market type arrangements to ensure that we don't stuff up that trading relationship. So is that the sectorial bargaining that you were mentioning at the beginning? So it's basically a prioritization that the UK and the EU will have to do where they uh, have a mutual interest in keeping barriers down, yes? Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Okay, so then you mentioned the Swiss model. Why do you think that the trade agreement that Switzerland has with the EU might be the best possible model for the UK to emulate? Because the Swiss model has really been a headache to the EU, hasn't it? The Swiss bilateral deals, this is what you say in your paper as well, are more static than the single market, which means that Switzerland does not automatically change its laws when the EU's laws are amended. And so that is a headache for the EU. And in turn, the Swiss are also not entirely happy with the agreement because they have been forced by the EU, for example, to accept the free movement of labor, which, as you say, is a red line for the Brits as well. So not ideal, is it? No, it, no, it certainly isn't ideal. Um, and going back to the starting point of my paper, which is, okay, what is the softest hard Brexit that is imaginable? And I put an emphasis on imaginable. But here, here is my case for why it could work. The first one is that it, the agreement doesn't violate Theresa May's no ECJ red line. The European Court of Justice doesn't have an involvement in the EU-Swiss relationship, really. It's sorted out by bilateral committees in the sectors where the Swiss have signed agreements with the EU in goods, in research, in aviation. And the bilateral committees agree that Swiss legislation is aligned enough with EU law that they can allow trade to happen freely or they can allow commerce to happen freely. So... If you can have something which looks a bit like that and you can get rid of the European Court of Justice, that's good. On the problem, which is a very real one, that the Commission is fed up with it because they don't download EU law rapidly enough. Well, you know, I mean, that's an advantage for the UK, right? I mean, if you're looking for sovereignty and you don't want to have EU law in operation, the Swiss is an example of somewhere where they have been allowed basically pretty big market access in goods without that happening. And if the 27 want to have a um, an agreement in goods, which they should, particularly Germany, uh, the Netherlands and others who have large goods exporters, then this is something which could provide a landing zone. And then finally, on free movement, it's obviously very tricky because the Swiss have just been forced essentially to back down after their referendum on free, on free movement. And the EU will not want to give the UK a better deal than the Swiss because then they open up the possibility of another argument with the Swiss again. But I would argue that this isn't a better deal than the Swiss have because 
you know, the Swiss have an extremely strong um, goods exporting sector, very high productivity, very high value added. And the UK's advantage is in services. Um, and this would be a much, much more limited agreement in services, particularly in their, their biggest crown jewel, the City of London. And the final th reason why I think that they should look to this as a, a possible reason is just because the UK is a much bigger and more important country than Switzerland is. It's not neutral. It, obviously, all of the security and counterterrorism concerns matter. And it's really important that this alliance isn't completely wrecked by this Brexit process. And so in my absolute best case scenario, this is the kind of deal that you can see would be would be possible. Um, one final point is just that uh, this will have some severe economic costs and big economic costs for Britain. It won't necessarily, you know, show up in some great recession or anything like that. But we will see a big source of its exporting advantage being facing some some barriers and some disadvantages when uh, trading with the UK's biggest natural trading partner. So I don't think that anybody on the 27 side could really see this as not providing a disincentive um, for others to go down the same route as the UK. Brexiting Swiss Style, a new policy brief by John Springford on the CER website now. Thanks, John. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. You can find more on our website, cer.org.uk, or follow us on Twitter at CER underscore London.